Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Kevin G. Belthoon. Kevin is the founder and chief creative officer of Dreams Design Life, a think tank for design and innovation. Over a career that spans more than 20 years, he's worked in engineering, business, and design. He is also the author of Reimagining Design, Unlocking Strategic Innovation, where we're going to be spending probably the lion's share of our conversation today. So Kevin, thanks for joining me on The Deep Dive. How are you, man? I'm good, Philip. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for for being here. You know, you know, I read I read the book, and we are going to spend a lot of time on the book, or decent amount of time on the book. But so much of your personal story is within the pages of of the book. So much of how you you started thinking about this career path, the mm. different ways in which it sort of unfolded. So I I do think that is critically important to how you approach the notions and, and ways in which we think about design. So I do want to spend a decent amount of time on that, on that part of, of the journey. So, you know, let's really start there because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you spend some time talking about Detroit and though having been born in New York state, spent formative years in Detroit. And I'm always really interested in Detroit for a variety of reasons. I've, lots of friends there and I have spent time there, hmm. but Detroit is this really interesting city that I, that I feel has had this kind of remarkable story as a place of technical innovation, Motor City, mm-hmm. a place of, of cultural innovation, Motown and dance and, and techno music, having been born out of Detroit. So it has this really interesting music and, and tech and innovation story built into this DNA and it's also been in more recent years symbolic of a type of decay, mm-hmm. you know, urban decay, urban malaise, whatever the think tanky kind of words um, we want to use, which don't really tell the story of, of Detroit in the way that I think it really matters. So you mentioned Detroit fairly prominently early in the book and what growing up there meant to you as kind of formulating your thinking. So I think that's a pretty good place to start there with with where you are right now. Yeah, no, um, as, as you describe it from your reading, uh, it makes me remember the Detroit where I imagined my neighbors in terms of like, you know, in the morning, they'd all get in their cars and they'd go to the big automotive firms or the companies and, and work either on the assembly line or in the, the white collar, quote unquote, office space. And, and many of those neighbors, even my own, you know, members of family were probably used to working for one employer for most of their career. You know, and there was sort of like the expectation that you'd have the the pension and the, you know, it, you you could foresee maybe having a life and a way to provide for your family. That that was sort of the the ethos at the time. But at the same time, I think as you as you mentioned, I, I think when I was there, you started to see the signals of potential decay starting to come to fruition, where you know plants would shut down, major footprints of manufacturing or engineering prowess would leave the state, and I think towns were left reeling. You know, I think Flint, Michigan, not too far from Detroit, is a is a you know glaring story of that. And 
and sort of the the assumptions that kept things running were being questioned or being were being disrupted, and you could start to see that happening in the neighborhoods around me. And you know, it's it's interesting because there's a design element in that, right? Like how much of not just Detroit, maybe we look at Detroit as a microcosm, but how much do we view the way we think about our, our future, the future of industry, how much of that is is designed into the type of obsolescence and the type of, of decay that's typified in a place like Detroit and maybe other urban urban cities? Like how do how do we put that lens mm-hmm. on on that type of, of social issue? Yeah, I think Every, every system that you navigate, and especially that area, sort of has to be questioned. You know, the education, the more I reflect back, it, it was definitely wired toward getting us to think about being a, an employee of a big company, <laughs> working at the factory, working at the engineering uh, office, business office. Uh, and that if you did the right things, if you did your job, you know, again, you could provide, you could, you could be a provider, you could have the home and two cars and, and sort of navigate forward and maybe, you know, pay for your kid's education. But again, like the, the wiring around like what, what could be for you, I think was sort of skewed toward serving the corporation, serving corporation as master, when I think the world provides so much more than that. And, you know, it's, it's interesting you, you talk about that, that fabric of, of kind of knowing, mm-hmm. perhaps. And it, it reminds me again, very early in the book, you talk about, you know, this notion of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And and how that that plays a, a role in the design process. You know, how do we kind of connect that uncertainty that is that is part of the design process with these kind of larger uncertainties that we're now all wrestling with, mm-hmm. whether those are political uncertainties, health uncertainties. It feels like that is being on less than stable ground is becoming the norm. Right. So how do we kind of connect all that together a little bit? Yeah, I, I think, you know, any notion of trend, if we think about like how trends influence our sort of imagination of what the future could behold. I think before I had, you know, perhaps adequate design foundation, adequate design training, um, notions of trend, my mind would just kind of lock in on tech trends. And so the the power of computation, Moore's law sort of comes to mind and Sure, we're we're moving perhaps from a linear rate of change around in terms of how technology is informing the art of the possible to perhaps the exponential. But I think you know having to wrestle with this notion of of future visioning and and pushing ourselves in the teams that I was a part of, pushing ourselves to think beyond just projecting the most likely future ahead based on recent trends that are you know immediately uh, behind us or affecting us in the moment. That um, to really push our imagination. Uh, we had to think about how trends sort of ebb and flow, uh, you know, and, and I think different industries have different cycles of how trends sort of affect the cadence of things. Uh, consumer products might be at a faster clip than perhaps imagining the automotive industry being able to handle certain types of change. One industry might change every six months. Another might take five to 10 years to change. And, you know, technology does inform that. But to your point, widening the aperture to consider other types of trends from, and, and so one of the acronyms that I, um, one of the acronyms I often leverage is what I call STEEP in the book, S-T-E-E-P-E. Um, other schools of thought might call it PESTLE, uh, just rearranging the, the letters of the acronym, but it's like giving appreciation for the full categorization of trend from um, social, uh, technological, economic, environmental, political, regulatory. And, and there's, there's a plus on that acronym for a reason because there, uh, there might be other categories of trend that we might want to 
we might want to curate and bring into the conversation. And I think it's a practice of not just, you know, coming up with a projection of what a future vision might be, but using those trends, using any inspirations, data points, exemplars that are out there in the landscape that we can observe, and actually cross-pollinating different combinations of trends together to inform different future scenarios that we might design within. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you started to bring up the, the way we look at the future, because it's something that we spend a lot of time on on the show. And I want to get into that topic. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, you know, I want to talk about, you know, some of the academic stuff, mm-hmm. not just because many people love credentials. I think we live in a world um, that credentials are a big part of, of how we make sense of things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it is imperfect. In, in every way, but it's still something that we do. Yeah. But, you know, again, as I was, as I was reading the book, I've, I felt like, you know, we don't know each other mm-hmm. beyond us having this conversation right now and, and, and all that good stuff. But as I, I read about you, for example, going through the consortium, you know, mm-hmm. going to the national black or full title for those who aren't black, the national black MBA, you know, these are things I I did as well. I didn't I was I didn't do consor- consortium, but I went to National Black. I have an MBA, blah blah blah. And I felt as I was reading that that it was this insight into this like parallel, like sort of academic and credential track that our white counterparts wouldn't really know anything about. In the sense that even though they might have gone to the same school, they didn't do the consortium by and large, right? They didn't go to National Black unless they were like just that one really, really different Black person. I mean, white person at your school, right? <laughs> that wasn't really their thing. So um, I I thought about how that experience is markedly different from probably some high percentage number of other folks that you would have come in contact with as you continued your design professional and academic career. So what did those experience mean to you as you compare it to the rest of the track, so to speak, is that you're sort of our maybe shared world kind of started to interact with other worlds? Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, thread of, of uh, reflection, I would say, in that it makes me remember like there was a curiosity that sort of brewed the volition to want to, you know, go into the academic arena to address a gap that I felt I, I had. You know, like you mentioned MBA, it was it was a clear gap that I felt prior to the MBA around like I, I just lack business acumen. I, I never had a business course in undergrad. I, I, it was all technical classes, all engineering classes. But, you know, navigating company waters and like what's happening and what, what type of agency might I have as a tech professional Navigating corporate America was sort of the big burning question. And, you know, in a company, they literally would want you to leverage yourself as an engineer over and over again, especially if you're a good engineer. It's like, keep doing that, please. <laughs> we'll, we'll do the big thinking, but keep doing your sort of technical applications. But wanting more license, wanting more appreciation for the bigger picture, thus, thus you stretch into the MBA experience. And to your point, like, I, I didn't have many friends that have gone in that path ahead of me to leverage. I, I didn't have uh, perhaps mentors ahead of me that did that, that type of thing. And I noticed that I was one of very few black students navigating that experience. And so you kind of look, you know, you sort of peek your head up sometimes and like look for people like you, communities, and you, you learn about National Black MBA, you learn about the consortium uh, community, 
And like, oh, wow, there's, there's a lot more people like that. If I, if I hitch my wagon to those threads, if I go to the actual conferences, if I immerse in the material, maybe I can find mentors, friends, peers to share war stories. And sure enough, that happened where um, even in, in business school, I could stick my head up and email quickly my friends over at Cornell or <laughs> Yale or, and, and have a conversation around like, okay, what's your MBA experience? What classes are you taking or what internships are you looking at? through our lens as a black community, perhaps that was super helpful. And then, you know, and, and being in business school was very much like an alpha culture, if I could say it that way. And it's like, you know, for money and power, you got to go do this for, for uh, influence, you got to do that. <laughs> and it's like, I'm coming from engineering from a radically different place and I'm trying to mix this stuff together, but where do I go? What, what, where's my voice in this? And I, I, I felt it hard to hear even myself amongst all the rhetoric in business school. So to your point, those communities outside of that uh, world were helpful. And, you know, then you're on this design track, right, where the, the training, the, the focus is a lot different. And, you know, I wanted to, to spend some time teasing that out because as you were relaying the futures thinking, you know, the visioning of, of what the world can look like as we go through design processes. So much of that is is predicated on having different lived experiences in the first place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so much of what I'm calling like classic or slash academic design, um, and these are just, again, imperfect terms, thinking about big design firms, Mm -hmm. you know, of which there's several, we all know the big names, right? they tend not to be as diverse, right? People tend to come from similar mm-hmm. backgrounds, you know, um, in, in a variety of different ways, right? So the larger thing I ponder is like, how do we get different visions and futures if the aperture to which we're trained in is a little narrow? <laughs> and and have, you, have, have you kind of processed that and, and thought about that? Because you do spend some time in the book, like engaging in breadth and depth, right? Yeah, you know, you're, you're so right. I think it took me a while to realize that what, whether it's going through design school and then like literally practicing the tool sets out there, back out there in corporate America and, and just recognizing over time that very few voices inform the present pedagogies of our time. And I'm speaking from the field of design and innovation and I think also, it, you know, I grew to sort of understand and reflect on my own per- professional experiences, knowing what it felt like to be an other, you know, as a, as a black man navigating corporate America um, and having to like constantly like wrestle with assimilation and expectations and, and also facing exclusion and resistance for who I was as a full person. Um, but I think professionally, if anything, that experience made me sort of over-index and just become more astutely aware of other marginalized folks. And again, not, I'm very hesitant to say, like, I, didn't, I don't know their realities. I knew the reality of what it was like navigating as a black man in those spaces. But I think the hyperacuity around like, oh, we're, 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 we have a blind spot because we're not really understanding women enough or we're not understanding our brown brothers and sisters enough over here. Like these blind spots keep happening when I'm navigating innovation topics in the corporate setting. And I look at like who's giving voice to the approaches of what we're leveraging as a methodology, and it's informed by the quote unquote majority. 
it's informed by the best practices coming out of a very few big name design agencies or, you know, quote unquote, world-class design institutions. But again, from a very narrow lens and the blind spots are still there. The latent needs are still unaddressed. There's still people marginalized and the world-class ilk, the, the ivory tower ilk are not addressing these problems or they're, 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 they're behaving very cursory in how they address certain problems that are still lingering. They're very cursory in terms of how they talk about those things and they move on almost to the point of being extractive. Like they may talk to the black community, but they will extract insights and then go run and make millions or billions of dollars and not help that community at all or address the value criteria that that's evident in that community. So all that to say is that, you know, my field, uh, our, our collective design and innovation field is woefully behind in terms of addressing that narrow aperture and, and inhibiting bias and harm that could be a result of it. And, you know, I love when language like extractive kind of comes up naturally. Like I have not written that word in, <laughs> in my notes <laughs> for listeners of the show who will think that I'm like trying to push you in a particular direction. But it's it's really fascinating to me that from a culture perspective, you will look at, you know, some of these communities and say for any number of reasons, some of them being just the visioning that exists within the communities, the having to answer and solve questions with less resources, whatever number of, of ways it moves, that the culture is is very forward thinking, mm-hmm. right? And people recognize this because if you're going to extract, you don't extract from like deserts, right? You extract from places that are that are fertile, mm-hmm. right? So on on one level, there is operating that there's value here, mm-hmm. but there's doesn't seem to be the strategic leap to more fully access these communities, to more fully plug into this culture, to create, again, a, a broader future. So how do we bridge that gap where we're, we're not thinking in an extractive model, but in a, in a more cooperative or, or stewardship type of model and building that into our design? Yeah, no, I, I think it starts with um, sort of the two-sided coin of education, right? All of us, regardless of our background, race, gender, whatever, like we all need to get educated on the threads of systemic inequities as it informs our professional spaces. And we're talking about the professional path of design. And then uh, the other side of that coin is to, to question what we view as pedagogy today. And, and, and recognize that there's enormous blind spots. Like you, you would think it should be enough for us to just recognize the, the right act of, of doing good by fellow, fellow mankind, you know, and, and, and practicing the right humane approach to things. But unfortunately for some folks, it's not enough to, to sort of address that human quotient. We have to go into the business realm and say, actually, you're, you're leaving business on the table. You're putting us in a weak position the more you continue forward with this myopic view of things. And let, we, have to, we have to sort of question the, the false sense of meritocracy, especially in the professional ranks of our field, to say those in power and privilege, you know, what you've done is, is not enough to say that you can design for everyone. You have to be humble, more humble about your, your talent, your craft. You, you, what, what got you to that point of power and privilege is not what the world's asking for or demanding of us now and as we move forward. So... Beyond the human quotient, we're leaving enormous business potential on the table because we're not as relevant as we could be. And we're not as authentic as we could be because folks 
now can see through company walls. They can follow what your employees are saying on Twitter. They know how your marginalized employees feel. You can't hide from the truth anymore as much as you could in the past. So let's dissolve the meritocracy. Let's identify that we have blind spots. As long as your teams are not as representative as the beautiful tapestry that it is the world, you're going to continue with these blind spots and potentially cause harm. And, and I think also in the creative problem solving that we do as part of uh, design and innovation, we have to create more space to have conversations around like, what are the ramifications of our business and design decisions? And, it's, and it goes beyond just the consumer model of like, I'm going to market to consumers and consumers are going to keep consuming. What happens beyond that? And I think people, hopefully now more than ever, they care about the ripple effect. So let's bring the ripple effect paradigms into the problem solving too. And, you know, I, I wasn't going to go here, but because ripple effect came up, I am going to go there. I'm, just, I'm skipping <laughs> a, a little bit down because as you were describing the way in which we have to to balance these things, mm-hmm. it, it reminds me of the book where you where you start to talk about, you know, these these notions of desirability, you know, viability and and feasibility. Mm-hmm. Right. Like these sort of pillars that we're, we're thinking through the design process. And, you know, as as I was reading that and, and kind of mulling it over, it made me think about, you know, who's making those decisions, mm-hmm. really. Right. Like when someone is is thinking about the future and thinking about different notions of how do we serve a particular need or a particular group or or how big the market could be and all these kind of terms, which are business terms, but also very human terms when it comes down to it. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you don't understand where an idea is coming from, it's hard for me to prove that it's really viable, for example, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So like kind of walk us through like how those pillars really work in real time against all the things we've kind of already talked about that we know are just sort of barriers operating in in these systems. Yeah. yeah. You know, when I, when I think about those three lenses over any opportunity, like to your point, desirability, like does this matter to someone? Business viability, like can we actually like win? Can we make money off, off of this opportunity? Uh, feasibility, will it actually work? Can we make it work? Or how difficult is it to actually realize the solution that we have in mind? But unfortunately, often we're in the trap of like, we're, we're talking in a language that's all about the marketer marketing and the consuming consu- the, the consumer consuming. And it's almost like this infinity wheel. And I'm, and I'm referencing a, lot, a visual that's often used by my mentor, Dr. John Maida. That infinity loop, the cycle of marketing and consumption gets faster and faster with computation. I mean, we're, we're always navigating spaces where we're impinged, like click the buy, click the buy all the time. And, you know, no one's perhaps stopping to say, Let's expand the problem solving to consider the, these ripple effects. Like, does it matter to someone? If we're talking about desirability. What about the people that are beyond just the end customer? Like, what are who are some of the other actors in the system or the environment that we're navigating? Have we thought about those stakeholders? A big stakeholder could be the environment itself. Like, if we're talking about climate change, like there's ripple effects on the climate or our energy footprint. Like, surfacing those other stakeholders really appreciating the system and that there's different value criteria amongst each of those different stakeholders in the system and how is value actually communicated back and forth? Where is exploitation happening? Where is there opportunities for sustainable like reinvention and renewal and more respectful sort of value exchange? These are things that we should be servicing more and more 
And if, if anything, hopefully it pushes on the definition of what we say is desirable, viable, and feasible if we do that. And, you know, I, I want to continue on that road a little bit because <laughs> those, those ripple effects are largely what, just to use a broad term, you know, many things that we're talking about are ecological, mm -hmm. right? Like even when we we talk about human-centric or or human-centered design, that is still putting a a hierarchy on our experience mm -hmm. as people versus any number of ecological effects that are happening throughout the world. And these systems tend to all be connected. Yeah. You know, this these conversations are surfacing more, but they're they're not what I would consider predominant, mm -hmm. you know, when mm -hmm. you walk into a the typical design room, right? So knowing that this is more of a concern, how do we pull that into that strategic design process that, that you talk about that then will hopefully lead to like the physical process, mm -hmm. right? Industrial type of the process. Like how do we start to bring this language mm -hmm. to the to the boardroom? or design studio? Yeah. You know, I think, I think more, um, two things. One, I think time or the, the speed of the clock can be an implicit authority. And so oftentimes we're not, we don't fully appreciate that. The speed of the clock only seems to get faster. I think the litany of meetings that we had to navigate, maybe it's more pre-pandemic where, you know, you had to be everywhere every five minutes. And sometimes the speed of the clock, like if I'm, if I'm in a design sprint that only needs to last a week, uh, that speed is an implied authority, and sometimes, uh, especially for uh, you know younger designers, they they may feel hesitant to actually raise their hand and say, "I, I actually have a concern about this interface because we're crossing an ethical boundary or we're creating a moral quandary over here." The the, the hesitation to want to raise their hand and stop the, the freight train from moving definitely is is a pressure that you know we all feel in the corporate setting. But I think for us to be creatively courageous. We have to slow down that train sometimes, raise our hand and say, you know what, if the company that I'm, I belong to or I'm a part of has any sort of substance, they will not mind me raising my hand <laughs> and stopping the train. And then secondly, you know, I think, I think like anything, any aspect of business or creation, you know, we, we definitely leverage frameworks, we leverage data, we leverage inspirations to feed our ideation, to feed our problem solving. Um, so why not use more frameworks that help us expand the canvas a little bit? So in the book, I make reference to the business model generation canvas, the value proposition canvas. These are um, visual frameworks that help anyone, designer, business person, technologist, dissect the basic components of a business and lay it out there on the table for us to question and poke holes at. And thankfully, there's been recent thought leadership where there's new canvases, like the impact canvas by my friend over at uh, Publicis Sapient, where he added some of these ripple effect territories around data ethics, sustainability, corporate responsibility to get us to question like, what are the domino effects as it relates to people beyond the marketing and consumption flywheel? What about our own employees for that matter? Like what's happening with them? What negative ills are we causing just because of the nature of our workplace? Like let's lay the canvases out and start to ask questions. And I think we, if we do those two things, that gives me a sense of hope that we'll get on the right track. Absolutely. You know, in, in the book, you, you spend a, a lot of time, you know, what I don't, I don't know if you explicitly say this, there, there might be portions where you do, but what I was struck with, struck by your journey is just the embracing of 
curiosity. Mm-hmm. You know, curiosity and, and inspiration, I would say, because you 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 talk about like the first time you saw like Air Max, mm-hmm. right? And I I remember that myself again, because I, I used to run track when I was in high school and college. Oh. And you know, my senior year of high school, I got a pair of Air Max, right? Nice. And it was like they had just come out. They only had like the the red color. Mm-hmm. That was it. <laughs> you know, later on they had a blue. So they had like two colors at one point. That was it. I thought it was like the biggest sneaker purchase I was going to make. And it was like, I don't even think it was a hundred dollars. Right. <laughs> but, at, you know, in, in those days, spending even more than $50 for a pair of sneakers was like, damn, son, <laughs> like you, you doing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it was, and it, it was both a performance thing because I, like I said, I was a runner and it was very much marketed as a running innovation, mm-hmm. but it quickly became like a style innovation, right? Like mad dudes was buying Air Max that didn't run for shit, right? <laughs> so my point to all that is, is like, it, it seemed like that seeing that product and connecting it to sort of the innovation you've seen at in, when you were growing up in Detroit and going to car shows and all that kind of stuff was was very much a part of of feeding that that curiosity. So how has that served you through that that journey? And if you can just spend a little bit of time on the Nike journey, because I think it's a place that is filled with just notions of how it is for those who who have never been inside mm-hmm. um, versus the reality. And that could be better or not as good, right? But I, it, it seemed like it was both collaborative and and sometimes not, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, no, no, you're right. It, I think compared to places where I worked before, Nike is probably the first place where, that really struck me as being very multidisciplinary within the pocket of executing product creation. And you felt it up and down the ladder of the company all the way to the C-suite where design had an equal voice on every shoe you can imagine. At the same time, there was always um, an engineer at the table thinking about ma- manufacturing and methods of make and materials and uh, sort of already imagining what the factory will have to go through to execute that new innovation. And then product marketing, because they have to realize that you know this shoe or this piece of apparel has to fit on the store shelf in a given way amongst an assortment of all kinds of products. And so how is the competitive positioning, the price point, placement, all those things. Uh, so every idea... That trifecta of people were always sparring at the table together, always defending their product assertions, uh, their prototypes in front of senior management. And senior management had that multifunctional voice too to sort of vet certain products. And that place wasn't a kill. That 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 place wasn't afraid to kill an idea if it didn't pass the muster test, right? So that that commitment to product creation, inspiration, innovation, like you felt it throughout the entire DNA of the place, which is awesome. At the same time, I think like any large enterprise, you know, some of the categories start to get siloed and, you know, the, the, the company sort of mechanics often get in the way where, you know, we might be designing for XYZ athlete, a runner to your point, to your earlier example, but I look outside and I see nothing but women running around campus <laughs> and they might be wearing mismatched tops and bottoms that don't really make well with the shoes that they're wearing and maybe their shoes were derived off of a, a male-inspired shoe from the first place and might not appreciate the women's sensitivities to the biomechanic aspects. So, you know, like any large company, riddled with bias, riddled with obstacles that got in the way of ourselves. Yeah. And and 
you know, the, the mix and match pieces <laughs> is, a, is, is a big piece, Vic. You know, very few people wear the full fit, right? <laughs> unless, unless you're given it by your team or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, very few folks is wearing full top to bottom. Because, you know, those that know, that's a little corny. Right? Like you just, can't, you just can't be wearing the full fit all the time. Like, what are you playing for the squad? <laughs> right? Like, stop it. Right? But how do you convince folks that people ain't buying this stuff together like that? That's one of those little nuances. Like you said, if you're looking out the window and you're in mm-hmm. your world, mm-hmm. it's obvious to you. Yeah. yeah. Right? Just like you know that, you know, yes, I might have been buying an Air Max because I had track meets every weekend, but a lot of folks wasn't buying that for that reason, right? It was solely a function of style. And I think about, and I'd be curious, you know, this is just kind of popped into my head how, and I don't know if it's on purpose, but again, there was just that one color when mm-hmm. they first came out. It was red, then they got a blue, and it seemed like that was it for years. And it's mm-hmm. only very recently, it feels like Air Max has now taken on <laughs> anything you could think of, right? Mm-hmm. Which I, which now seems to me like it's telling a different story. Like, what, what do you think about that? It just kind of occurred to me off the cuff. Yeah. Um, un- unfortunately, I think I think sometimes too much choice inhibits the opportunity. <laughs> I think you're, you're um, you know, the, the pinnacle inspiration that bred the product in the first place. You know, there was something to those iconic reds and blues, right? And, you know, what what broader culture, especially our culture, like sort of what it sort of did with it, you know, how they had they kind of rocked it on the streets. Like that, that made it an icon. It wasn't just the brand itself. It was the culture rocking and deciding, you know, I'm a, I'm a sign for that, that I'm a co-sign that. Like, if you wear that, you're going to be cool. You're going to be this, you're going to be that. Uh, but it becomes so many things to trying to appease everyone. Then I think the story starts to get the loot. Just my feeling. And, you know, as a designer, you know, you've worked on so many different, you know, products and projects. Like, how do you balance that history, that shared history that we might have with a particular Mm. um, idea of something Mm. with moving Mm. that same something forward to a completely different audience, you know, and I'll I'll use just another sneaker example for this. I think about, again, dating myself, 80s, Fila to me was Dougie Fresh, Mm. right? Like Dougie Fresh was the first person that kind of brought Fila to my reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other tennis and all this other kind of stuff had it, but that meant nothing to me. It was all Get Fresh Crew, mm-hmm. right? And I could picture mm-hmm. the album cover, right? Yeah. Fast forward, there's been a complete reinvention of the the style, the shape, to feel it in a way that like my 18-year-old niece, you don't know nothing about Dougie Fresh, right? Like that is not, that would mean <laughs> nothing to her. Right. But the, the style and shape of something has to hearken to that. Mm-hmm. while doing something new. Again, it doesn't have to be a sneaker example, but I'm more trying to get at the legacy of something versus the newness of something. And how do you think through that as someone who's likely had to? Yeah. Um, I, I think I think the critical lenses that I put up are, you know, number one, how are we creating new utility for someone in their travels, in their journey on their terms, right? If If I'm in Brooklyn or in, you know, Santa Monica, Los Angeles. If if I, if I want to rock a pair of kicks that need to like allow me to walk, you know, several miles a day because I'm you know on my feet all day, I want to know that that utility is going to serve me when I need it the most on my terms. And then secondly, in an information rich world with everyone convincing me to buy, 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 like 
how are, how how is what you're telling me about the story behind the shoe, uh, this brand, going to convince me to actually pick your shoes up versus someone else's? You know, in terms of just like giving me the education of why it's better for me, give me the education of what this brand is affiliate, who is who or who are they affiliated with, uh, what values do they represent? Do those values latch on to like personalities that I see in the culture and and the the general market that I that I vibe with and feel like. Yeah, that speaks to me and, and my personality, and I, I can resonate with that. And then lastly, is there an emotional connection? You mentioned Dougie Fresh. Like, I, I remember certain, like, you know, celebrity or, you know, cultural icons and, and what they wore at certain times, right? If it was Jay's or Shelto Adidas, like, I remember those cues. And, you know, if I, when I'm looking for, like, a, a, a car or a carnival model to wear in sport, like, I'm going to grab to those select icons, and I'm not going to really care about much else. Because those references are important for me, and uh, you know, I have a a twelve year old uh, son at home who, um, you know, I've showed him legacy footage of Michael Jordan doing his thing, and and he sees how well he played back then compared to players now. Like he's still outperforming when you match up the tapes, and my son sees that and falls in love with the Jordan story and the legacy, and wants to be a part of that versus any brand that he could easily pick up in a store. So. Those are the three elements, I think, utility, uh, relevance of information to convince me to use that. And then did you show up? Is there a story that hooks to my journey some way and some inflection point? And then I think I think there needs to be sort of an unwinding of the market convention that led us to this point. Like based on the configuration of a shoe, I think we were forced to wear certain shoes that probably weren't good for us. But the market sort of said, your shoe's got to have laces like this and a thick outsole like that biomechanically, that might have not been the best thing for us. You know, we, we had to make room for like a, a Nike Free or a, a, an Adidas Future Craft. Like some of these new and novel innovations that are coming along, hopefully were designed for certain, you know, anatomical reasons to mesh with our human experience. But to do those things, we had to actually disrupt the precedent that had come before for, for better or for worse. Like, and sometimes people need to be jarred. The consumer might need to be jarred away from something that didn't really serve them well but they didn't know it because they didn't have the education. They didn't have the information. So I think there's there needs to be a recognition of what has happened in the past and unwinding that for people. And I want to spend a little time on that unwinding, right? Like, you know, when you think about that, that process, right? Mm-hmm. You're charting new territory, mm-hmm. but you're not, you can't push people too far away. That's right. From from what they know, right? So how do you balance that and how do you prepare folks? for mm. those, those new, you know, reaches again, it, it doesn't, these examples don't have to live in sneaker mm. and commerce, just, mm-hmm. just broadly, you know, how do you get folks ready for notions and ideas that they might not even be aware mm. that they want, right? Like, I didn't know I want to carry 10,000 songs with me, you know, <laughs> that's right. Until I saw an iPod. <laughs> right? That's right. That's right. Uh, I thought I, I just needed my a couple of CDs in a in a in plastic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I remember those huge books we used to carry in our cars. It's like, yeah. You know. <laughs> so, <laughs> I thought my sixty CD changer in the trunk was killing it back in the day. I, you couldn't tell me I wasn't rolling. <laughs> Who knew I needed Sirius FM and all these other things? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think if we. Um, if we, if we don't talk to people and just sort of put something new on the store shelf, expecting it to sell, that's like sort of a build it, they will come sort of, you know, philosophy that's already sort of flawed from the jump. And, you know, we're, we're risking everything that we've done up until that point. 
So I think I think you and I are of the mind of definitely like practicing the inverse of making sure that we have a, a product creation process, innovation process, design process that's very participatory in nature, like including our audience in the journey. And you know, there, there's all kinds of limitations when you deal with a company doing that. You know, with, from intellectual property to you know people on the outside not being able to look on the inside and vice versa. So all those things kind of get in the way. But ideally, the more we travel forward, the more we have a co-creative mindset of not just designing for someone. Ideally, we're designing with and even going further and actually just including them in our teams from the very beginning and ensure that we have a continuing conversation with our audience through our sources of influence, hopefully authentic influence and authentic relationships to constantly test and refine and learn and always be working on that sort of product market fit as we're pushing ideas through the hopper to final commercialization so that by the time it reaches the store shelf, you've de-risked a lot of the lack of resonance through that journey. Um, so that's how I sort of see it. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, you know, I'm watching the time. I want to make sure we get to a couple more questions before we get to the final two segments of the show. And these are going to perhaps seem a little unrelated, but mm. I'm going to do my best to relate them. <laughs> so let's let's see how this, this works. You know, when one is going to be an inspiration um, from not academic, but, you know, you reference, for example, in the book, you know, the work of like Dieter Rams and, mm-hmm. and Buckminster Fuller, you know, people that I love, you know, for those who can't see the crib, I got a lot of books and stuff about these folks. So have have been readers and followers of them for a very long time. Recently, I've gotten a chance to spend more time with folks who are, you know, Black designers mm-hmm. and and thinking about their inspirations and the work that they do. And I'm curious from your perspective as someone who spent a long time in this, you know, how do we sort of broaden the lived and used examples Mm. that we bring into design spaces? You know, how do we get other voices into this conversation, whether they're women's voices, Black voices, Indigenous voices? Because when we... Again, this is now I'm adding opinion into this. Mm-hmm. When we have spaces that don't speak to other types of people and their design work, we're sort of narrowing what design is, right? Design looks like a lot of things, mm-hmm. right? And it's not just like geodesic domes and stuff like that. It's a bunch of stuff, yeah. right? So, how do you think about that and 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 bring it into a, your work? Because, like I said, you talk so. Mm-hmm. eloquently in the book about breath and depth. And it seems like that's a good place to add some breath and depth. Yeah, you're, you're right. It's, um, you know, breath is like, you know, how, how do we communicate and collaborate with each other uh, and align around opportunities, right? And ideally, we're dealing with that across more diverse multidisciplinary teams as we move forward to the future. And then depth, recognizing that we, we definitely want to celebrate the subject matter expertise that we each bring as individuals. So in order to orchestrate that to come up with more relevant innovations, we have to get out of the trap of that, that narrow lens that have been sort of defined by the, the very few privileged folks in power that have defined today's uh, design pedagogy. And a lot of that is, is the way it is by design. I mean, those folks in power and privilege wrote these books. They, they celebrated only certain stories for a reason, right? They wanted to maintain that myopic definition of what is world-class design in their eyes. And that anything outside of that realm, anyone that uh, represented or tried to represent that, their stories were hidden. So I think there's 
probably a ton we could do to unwind and unpack and reveal some of those hidden stories that were part of the great legacies of design. I'm sure there were probably tons of women in the Bauhaus that whose stories were never told. Their work was probably subjugated by the the, the big names of the Bauhaus. Uh, same for you know Ray and Charles Eames as in another example. I'm sure there's a lot that Ray did that probably only saw a little bit of the light of day compared to Charles. You know, and I think I think again, I'm not taking away anything from the good work from some of those circles, but there's infinite number of circles across this planet where good design, innovation, uh, intersections with science and culture, like think about all that's been, you know, exploited, raped and pillaged from the continent of Africa, that I'm sure there's enormous amounts of new and novel thinking that, you know, are either lost or scrubbed or hidden that we need to sort of go find. And all pockets of the world, like there, there are sources of creative problem solving that we can glean inspiration from. And we need to use that to expand our pedagogies for the better. Absolutely. And, and, and let me get you out on, on, on this question, because it's, it's taking a little bit of that looking at the past to define the future mm-hmm. argument. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time recently, well, writing about the notion of imagine, imagination capture and, mm-hmm. and how, you know, our imaginations even when we're talking about innovation, seem to be captured by ideas and, and notions very much rooted in the past and, and not in a good way, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think about, you know, Web3 and, and the metaverse and all of the so-called promise of, of these worlds. And again, my editorial only, it's still very rooted in extraction-based mm-hmm. capitalism. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're kind of building so-called new things using the exact same scaffolding that already exists. We're just calling it something different. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's my very simplistic drawing of that before all the NFT nuts and, and web three <laughs> folks start coming in my mentions. Um, <laughs> despite the fact that I think they're mostly fraudsters. So having said all that, how do we balance or, or how do we break out of that imagination capture to the extent that these technologies are going to exist? You know, how do we still debate the certainty of them? Because that's one of the things that bothers me, right? Is that we just mm-hmm. assume they're going to be here. And I'm yeah. like, well, who's making that decision, right? Mm-hmm. And and how do we, if they're going to be here, how do we manifest them in a way that defies the models of the past? Heavy question to go out on, but I wanted to... <laughs> I wanted to to try and get an, another thinker to sort of weigh in on that. Yeah. You know, when you mention things like metaverse, even mixed realities, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, like all these new popular buzzwords and the zeitgeist, like they're still just enablers to me, honestly, where ultimately we, we need to serve, again, a constellation of stakeholders that inform an, an ecology. And, and in this case, ecology spans from the physical realm to perhaps the virtual realm, uh, heavily embodied by what the metaverse is supposed to be. But if, if we believe that, um, you know, we're entering in a new age of the internet where a lot of the middle players, the middlemen could be actually, you know, subjugated or taken out of the equation. And we actually are giving quote unquote free tools, free platforms for people to navigate and build their own agency and license. Then I, I, I wonder back to our conversation around expanding the aperture, expanding the pedagogy and, and finding sources of truth around this planet beyond just the, the zeitgeist of the popular pedagogy. Like what, what new stories might we craft? What, what imaginative, regenerative, 
sort of optimistic, less dystopian <laughs> stories that we paint that show like healthy value exchange between human beings and the environment. What stories actually foster human connection, human uh, empowerment, unlocking human potential. And, we're, and these are not phrases that match the infinity wheel of marketing and consumption at all costs. Like, is there a different paradigm that meets people where they are and where they need to be to help them become better versions of themselves and the foster community? Like, let's paint those stories and then use the enablers, the technologies in the right way to make those stories real. That gives me a sense of hope if we can do that. That's awesome. I, I love that that sense of hope beyond me calling people fraudsters. But I'm, I, I still am totally committed to doing that because I like to poke that bear whenever I can. Um, you know, as, as promised, I want to get us to the final two segments of the show. And the first one is off the dome, which are just some rapid fire questions. I have three of them. Okay. All right. And again, no wrong answers, just the first thing that comes to mind. When you describe your work to you know, friends or family, other people that you might come in contact, what is the most common misperception when you talk about your work as a designer that you hear? That I'm there to make something look pretty. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm styling. That's okay. All I do is I'm a stylist. And it's like, no. <laughs> my, my wife might argue that I have no style at times. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I could totally, totally see and hear that, <laughs> you know, not so much that you don't have style. I'm talking about like that you're trying to make things pretty. I yeah. think design just drills down to people just think that, right? Mm -hmm. um, the second one is what would you want to think about or work on as a design project or challenge? Like if you could work on anyone, anything that's out there that, that represents a design challenge or project, what would that be? look like? Um, you know, of course, I would want to latch myself to the biggest problems of our time, but I also recognize my limitations <laughs> <laughs> and also my, my strengths of things that I've done. You know, being an industrial designer, mechanical engineer by training, I, I definitely gravitate to things still of a physical nature. Aside from all the apps and websites and things, metaverse, I still believe that human beings need like sensorial interfaces, tangible interfaces. And when I think about like the home environment, you know, I think a lot of our devices still are these like black plastic boxes all around the home. But I, I'm a big believer in like, how can we leverage architecture, the ancient materials, as well as modern materials to actually fashion artifacts that have personality that they actually behave and work for us, but kind of fade to the background when they're not being used and can look part of their decor. So, you know, to, the, the short answer is um, I want to work on the next wave of smart artifacts that are sensitively like designed for human conditions. <laughs> That's awesome. I think my home could definitely benefit from some, from some of your work. <laughs> so I'm, I have a personal stake in you getting that off the ground. That sounds awesome. And, and so obviously you've thought about this a lot. So this actually leads perfectly into the final off the dome question, which is kind of a cheat because it's a twofer that I've, I've rolled into one question in, in your mind, in your opinion, what is one of the best designed sort of everyday products and what is one of the worst designed everyday products by however you define everyday? Hmm. I think, I think um, one design that I love, it's right behind me. It's, it's uh, my Vitso shelf system. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was designed in the early 50s, Dieter Rams, um, iconic design. But I, I just love how it keeps my stuff organized. Um, 
you know, if I, if I move houses, I could rip it all down and expand it and leverage it for the next house. Um, you know, and it, it's aesthetically pleasing, functional, you know, I use it every day. On the flip side, the, the worst design, you know, I, I, th- I think it, it's the typical suspect, the, the latest Apple Magic Mouse with the charging cable where you have to turn it over like a turtle on its backside. <laughs> like that, it just drives me crazy every time. That's that's a good both both of those are are really good. I don't typically answer these questions, but I need to put this into the universe on the worst product design. Please. It's usually a twofer for me, but I complain about this all the time. I hate how plastic wrap is designed. <laughs> like there has been like zero innovation in plastic wrap from the time I was a little kid. You can never peel that motherfucker off. <laughs> it always sticks to itself. Uh-huh. It's the way that the tear off part is always on the back where you want to grab it. So you cut your finger. It's like, who made this? Right. It's like the stupidest thing ever. So even though I don't typically weigh in to off the domes, I have to express my disdain for plastic wrap. Absolutely hate it. It's the worst thing ever. What about, um, your, favorite? What about your favorite? I don't even know if I have a favorite to be, to be honest. Um, probably like just notebooks and stuff. Like I just, I'm really basic. Like a good notebook to me mm-hmm. is just amazing. Right. Like yeah. when it has really good paper turns, right. Good binding. Mm. I mean, it's like, <laughs> what, what more could you ask for than a really good quality notebook? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a man of very simple pleasure, plastic wrap and notebooks. Right. <laughs> um, so let me, let's get to the drop and the drop is just, an opportunity for us to share anything at all with our our listeners that we think they should be aware of on top of. It doesn't have to be anything super heavy, even though I think I have two this week and they're probably a little heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll go first. My drop is at the time that we're having this conversation, since these conversations tend to come out a little later, last week, the first um, season, the first episodes of the new season of Atlanta just Mm -hmm. dropped. And Atlanta is one of my favorite shows. It's in season three. They dropped two episodes. Both of them were fantastic. No spoilers. But I think if you haven't engaged with Atlanta as a listener, definitely catch up on the first two seasons. Um, If you haven't seen the first, this new season yet, jump in. It's dope. And that's my drop. Atlanta season three. Awesome. Awesome. All right. And so you're up, my friend. Okay, I gotta pull up the reference. Sure oh, go speak. for it, man. I, I read these too, so <laughs> I'm not expecting folks to have this off the top of their head. So, so you mentioned some of the icons like Dougie Fresh and and the like. Um, you know, a big a big group that influenced my childhood in many ways was the Tribe Called Quest. And um, so, Fife Dogs' uh, posthumous a- album "Forever." Um, I, I listened to that for the first time this morning on my run, and uh, that was just uh, you know incredible. So I'm going to listen to that to death all this week just to enjoy that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man. That is, that is a great drop for many reasons. One, I'm in the same boat. I love Tribe. And actually, Tribe was my drop like a few episodes ago. Oh, nice. Um, just generally, their discography. Like I was urging people to like, yo, if you haven't listened, like listen to Tribe. And I saw the Fife album had come out, but I haven't listened to it myself. So now you've inspired me <laughs> to make sure that I check it out, you know, Rest in peace, rest in power to Fife. One Indeed. of the best to ever, ever do it. Um, that is a great drop. So, Kevin, thanks so much for joining me on the deep dive. This was a, a great conversation to which I had no doubt it would be because the book is timely. The book is important. Again, it's called Reimagining Design, 
unlocking strategic innovation, definitely pick it up, definitely engage with it. It's the type of book that I, I could see future revised editions, <laughs> right? So you built a product that's going to last, my friend. So great job. Oh, thank you so much. And really appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely. Thanks again. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.